0: Well, if you haven't been with us for the last couple Sundays, we've been going through a a series of sermon texts that are not your usual Christmas texts. Uh, Maybe if you were looking at the bulletin when you came in and saw Hebrews chapter 1, you thought, wait a minute, you know, is this the right Sunday? Is this bulletin a typo? No, it's not a typo. Uh, We've been going through a few texts that don't tell of the details of Christ's birth, but that tell us kind of the reason for the season, as we like to say very often. We're looking at some texts that tell us why the Word became flesh, why Christ was born of Mary that first Christmas day so long ago. And what the book of Hebrews does, and what our text in the first four verses of the entire book does, in some ways it gives us kind of a thumbnail sketch uh, of the progress of God's revelation throughout the Old Testament all the way up into Christ's birth in the first century. Uh, It's a a thumbnail sketch of God's revelation of himself to mankind in Scripture and in history. And I think in some ways our text, if you think about it, it it helps us to have a right understanding of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. How they relate to each other, how the one fulfills uh, the other. And in our text, these first four verses of of Hebrews (laughs) chapter 1, Also what it does is it it shows you the theme of the book. The theme of Hebrews, in a lot of ways, is the greatness and preeminence of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's the preeminence of Christ over all things, even of the Old Testament temple, the sacrificial system, the, the priesthood, the prophets in the Old Testament. That's kind of the primary theme of the book of Hebrews, the preeminence of Christ. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I'll invite you to stand if you're able to do so for the reading of God's word today. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4, give ear to the reading of God's holy word. It says, Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Mm -hmm. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, so the whole book, the theme of the whole book is kind of captured for us in these opening verses of the letter. And again, that theme is the, the reason he's writing, the thing he's writing to convince us of and teach us about is the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ over all things, his preeminence over the law of Moses his preeminence over the entire Old Testament sacrificial system, over the temple, over the priesthood, even over the sacrifices themselves. And the way that he's preeminent over those things is that he is the fulfillment of those things. He is the thing, he is the one rather, that all those things you read about in the Old Testament were intended to point us forward to. And so when he finally came, he does away with all those things because he fulfilled them. That was the reason he came. And so he was the fulfillment. He was the substance of which those, all of those shadows were supposed to point us forward to. And so in the first thing, the way the book opens up, the first thing that the writer here does in the epistle is contrast Christ and his coming with God's former ways of speaking to his people in the Old Testament. He's contrasting the greatness of God speaking through his Son, with the way God spoke in in the Old Testament through His prophets. Look at verse one, where He tells us the way that God used to speak in the Old Testament to His people before the coming of Christ. He says, long ago, verse one, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So in times past, and He's really referring here to the entire Old Testament period, Think, think of how long a period that was. Thousands of years. And over those thousands of years, God spoke to the fathers. and He wasn't silent. God was not silent. He spoke, and He spoke in a lot of different ways. Now, the, the Old Testament saints are called here in the New Testament our fathers. What is that? Why does He say that? There are forefathers according to the faith. There's a hymn that we sing. It's not uh, we're not singing it today, but there's a hymn uh, in the Psalter Hymnal. Uh, maybe you've sung it before. Faith of our fathers. And the faith of our fathers isn't just the New Testament believers, it's the Old Testament saints as well. There are forefathers in the faith. Now, how were the Old Testament saints, believers, saved? It's not a trick question. Some, sometimes you may hear differently than this, but the saints in the Old Testament, Abraham and David and Moses and everybody that you see that knew the Lord in the Old Testament, thats with the, that are with the Lord now in heaven, They are saved the same way that you and I are. They are saved by grace alone. They are saved by faith alone. And they're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. They were not saved by works any more than we are. They're saved the same way by the same promises of the gospel that we are. They're not saved by works. They were saved by grace in Christ. Now, what's the difference? They look forward to the Christ who was yet to come. And they saw him in all the foreshadowings and promises and all these things in the Old Testament that pointed forward to Christ and his sufferings and his glory. We believe and look to Christ who has already come. It's the only difference. They're saved just the same as we are by faith in Christ. But how did God speak to them? They didn't have the whole picture, did they? They had more than we might think they did, but they didn't have the entire picture. He spoke to them, the writer says in verse 1, at many times... And in many ways. Now in verse one, this is our grammar lesson for this morning. In verse one, uh, the writer uses three different adverbs to describe the way that God used to speak to the fathers in the Old Testament. And the first one is reference to time. ESV puts it as long ago. Now the, the idea here isn't so much the length of time, how long ago it was, but the fact that it was time past. The fact that it was time past. And also this word implies that things are different now. They're not the same as they were uh, at the time. And so it, it implies it very strongly that in some way God spoke differently to them. didn't speak a different message, but he spoke in a different fashion to them than he does uh, to us in our day. And so what it really implies is God has spoken to us in a much greater way now. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, we the older you get, maybe you think along these lines. You, you think of the good old days we were talking this morning uh, as we were setting up about some old TV shows we used to watch and how they were safe for the whole family to watch. And we don't have that anymore. And I guess I'm getting old because I'm sounding like that more and more. But you know, sometimes we act like in our day, we yearn for the good old days back when God used to you know, reveal things and say things out loud. And you know, they, we act like all the Old Testament saints had these visions and God speaking them directly and things like that. But the writer of the Hebrews would say, no, 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 no. The good old days... Uh, aren't as good as what you have now. Because God speaks to you in a much greater way than he spoke even to the prophets and through the prophets in the Old Testament. We have something better with the advent of Christ. It's one more thing that Christmas should remind us of is that God speaks to us in the greatest way he has ever spoken through sending his son. Now the second adverb in verse 1 is rendered by the ESV in some translations as "as God speaking in many different, uh, the word they use is times. Now, the word here, it's a it's kind of a strange word, but it really has the idea of portions or parts, and not so much of, of time. The NASB, New American Standard, puts it this way. It puts it better, I think, when it talks about God speaking, quote, in many portions and in many ways. Now, that probably sounds strange to our ears, God speaking in many portions. But the idea that's in mind here by the use of that word is that God's revelation was not yet complete. It was partial. God was giving part of the picture and not the whole thing at in, in the old times in the Old Testament. There was something else yet to come to finish the picture. In other words, God's revelation of himself in the Old Testament was and is fully true and trustworthy, but it wasn't yet complete as it was going to be when Christ came. And so what, what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that with the coming of Christ, Finally, we have God's final word. God's greatest and final word is when Christ came. Now, if you think about it, this is just the nature of progressive revelation. In other words, God did not give the entire picture of everything in Genesis. You think of it like planting a seed. You know, there's a saying, I don't know who came up with it, but they say the oak is in the acorn. If you plant an acorn, now I'm not very good at planting and watering. The things I take care of tend to die when it comes to green things. But if you plant an acorn, what are you going to get if it grows? An oak tree, 100% of the time. Everything that makes up that oak tree, everything is in that seed. the, The essence or the substance of that oak tree is all found in that little acorn. Well, in the same way, you have the New Testament teachings of the gospel in seed form growing slowly but surely throughout the Old Testament. It comes to its final fruition, and the, you know, the whole tree is showing, and the fruit is there when Christ had come. That's the same kind of thing you have here with the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament, the, t- the things the Old Testament teaches us are the same that we find in the New Testament, but it's only in seed form. You might know Augustine is quoted as saying something like this, the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed and the new is in the old concealed. What's he what he means by that is the same things are found in both but the Old Testament is finally revealed fully in the New Testament. How do you understand your new your Old Testament by reading the New Testament in some ways? I like to think of it as the you know nobody uses old-fashioned cameras anymore with the, the the manual focus, but it's a lot like that. People have suggested that the progress of God's revelation is like focusing of a camera. If you're focusing on a, on an object to take a photograph of it, and you're focusing the lens, the same object is in view, but the details become more and more sharp, sharply defined and clear as you focus the camera's lens. That's what's happening throughout the Bible, from Genesis all the way until Christ come, came in the gospels. And so before the coming of Christ, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that we had a good picture, but in some sense, only a partial picture of God's revelation to mankind. But with Christ's coming, we finally have, so to speak, the final piece of the puzzle, and the picture is now fully in focus and completed. The third adverb in verse one, he says, it says that God spoke, quote, in many ways, now that's kind of an understatement. I don't. We don't have the time this morning uh, to go through all the different ways that God spoke in the Old Testament. If you're familiar with your Old Testament, you can probably think of a lot of different ways that God spoke through the prophets. Sometimes it was through a vision, like when you read in the the the, uh, the book of Isaiah. Sometimes he had the the prophets kind of act out things. Some of them are rather strange. You know, you had uh, Hosea being told to marry a, a woman of ill repute. You had uh, one of the prophets being told to to act out a siege it 's like he 's playing with legos he 's acting out a siege against the city to show a picture of what God was going to do. so God spoke in many different ways to the fathers, by the prophets He spoke in visions he spoke in miracles he spoke through shadows of Christ in the sacrificial system, the temple the priesthood all these things pointed forward and spoke they were God revealed himself through those. Things, the the Westminster Larger Catechism says something similar to this in question 34. It says, How was the covenant of grace, that's really the gospel, how was the covenant of grace administered under the Old Testament? In other words, the covenant of grace is the same in the Old and New Testaments, but how was it administered? How was it revealed in the Old Testament? The answer it says is, the covenant of grace was administered under the Old Testament by promises prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover, and other types and ordinances, which did all foresignify Christ then to come. They foresignified, they were a foreshadowing. They pointed forward to Christ who was yet to come and were for that time sufficient to build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah by whom they then had full remission of sin and eternal salvation. In other words, they were saved really and truly in Christ, by Christ, by faith in Christ back then through those signs. And the purpose of those signs and foreshadowings was to point them and their faith to him. They weren't saved by faith in animal sacrifices. They were actually saved by faith in Christ, whom those animal sacrifices were a picture of. Hebrews later in the book, it's a fascinating book. If you've never read it uh, fully, read through it sometime and take your time. But it says that the blood of bulls and goats, it was impossible, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. They never did. Only Christ's blood did that. But they were pictures, they were foreshadowings of Christ who was yet to come. And so Old and New Testament, they both contain the same covenant of grace. They both teach the same gospel of Christ. But those things in the Old Testament, what did they do? They spoke or pointed forward to the Christ who was yet to come on that first Christmas day, as the Catechism says. They foresignified or foresigned Christ who was yet to come. And so, when Christ came, all those things changed. I don't, you know, it's hard for us in our day. Even, it would be even hard for the apostles in their day to appreciate the change, the magnitude of the change that took place when Christ came no more types and shadows, no more foreshadowings, because the substance of which those shadows were supposed to point had finally come with the birth of Christ. The minute Christ was born, the temple, the sacrificial system, all the animals, the priesthood, all of that was becoming obsolete. It's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, the temple is no longer standing. It is no longer to be expected to be rebuilt, The Lamb of God came who took away the sins of the world. And so the shadows serve no more purpose. Well, that brings us to verse 2. The first thing he tells us is the way God used to speak to the fathers by the prophets, and now he's going to tell us the way that God has spoken, not just to the fathers, but to us by his Son in these last days. Look at verse 2. He says, But in these last days he, that's God, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And notice the contrast he makes there between God speaking long ago or in former times and in these last days. We are living in the last days now. The last days, I know we often think of that as somewhere far off in the future, right before Christ returns. No, the last days, according to scripture, started when? At Christ coming. When the, when, when the Messiah finally came, when he was born, and lived and died and rose again and ascended to heaven. That was the inauguration of his kingdom and of the last days. The last days began at the birth of Christ. Now that phrase last days it might sound kind of you know kind of confusing, but it it doesn't so much mean that the time is short, although it may be we don't know. The point is the time of Christ has finally come. We're in those last days it's the last thing that we are to have expected it's the time of the fulfillment of God's promises of Christ, his promises being fulfilled in Christ. And so there's no, there's no next big thing before the return of Christ in glory to judge the living and the dead. There's no next phase of God's revelation until Christ comes back. We are in the last days, the last part. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, it's not it was not a part of the word that Christ brought, but the last closing word. God's ultimate revelation of himself to us was in and by his son. And notice also the writer, it's easy to kind of pass by these things as you read passages, but it says that he has spoken, who has he spoken to by Christ? In these last days he has spoken to us by his son. He has spoken to us, you know. Even believers sometimes say they wish that God would speak to them. I wish God would give me a sign. I wish God would just tell me or give me the answer. God has spoken, and he has spoken to you. He has spoken to us. He still speaks to you now through Christ, through his word. How has God spoken to us? He's spoken to us in his holy word in the scriptures, and that's the scriptures of the Old and New Testament together, and what do they speak of? Both Old and New Testaments are primarily about Jesus Christ. You might know in the ending chapter of Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 24, uh, Jesus after the resurrection, he's on the Emmaus Road, and there's two disciples, and they're kept kept from recognizing him yet. And they're walking along, and Jesus kind of, you almost wonder if he had a grin on his face when he was walking with them. They don't know it's him. They're kept from realizing it's him. And he's, hey, what's going on? What are you guys talking about? And they're dejected. They think the whole thing, has fallen apart they thought Jesus was the one who was going to redeem Israel they said and he's dead and they don't realize that the people that the women that came and told them he was raised from the dead they don't realize they were right and they're dejected and walking along and this is what he says to them Luke 24 verses 25 through 27 it says and he said to them O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken where's he pointing them? The Old Testament, he's saying, you, you guys just don't know your, you don't do Old Testament much, do you? You don't know your Bible. You don't know your scriptures. So you're, you're slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things, you know, the cross, suffer these things and enter into his glory? In other words, this had to happen. Why? Because the Old Testament talked about it. And then it says, in beginning, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Would have liked to have been there for that Bible study. <laughs> He's like, you got the whole thing wrong. Remember all those things you heard in, in, you know, from, from, he wouldn't have called it the Old Testament, but in the prophetic writings, what did you think they were about? They were about me. They were about me suffering the cross to save sinners and his glory, his being raised from the dead, his being ascended to the right hand of God, the father almighty. And he says, that's what all the prophets have spoken. That's a shorthand way of saying the entire old Testament. What was the entire old Testament about? It was about Christ and it was about his sufferings, his cross and his glory, his resurrection from the dead and his ascension. They should have, he's kind of saying, you should have seen this coming by your reading and knowledge of the Old Testament. So what's the central message of the entire Old Testament? Christ's sufferings and glory. The cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ are at the heart of the message of the Old Testament, not just the New Testament. And we have Jesus' own word to say that that is so. And then what does Luke say in that last verse that Jesus did? Beginning with Moses, that's the first five books of your Old Testament, beginning beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted or explained to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he explained the entire Old Testament. He gave them an Old Testament survey course. I don't know how long the walk was. But he showed how all of it pointed to him. And then, of course, he showed them that it was him. And they knew he was risen from the dead. So Jesus is God's final word. God has spoken to us in his Son. And so there is no there is no greater revelation of God that he is going to give. He's already given the greatest revelation of, a, of him to us in his Son. And so if you want to know God rightly, and that's what you have to do, you, you can't make up the God of your own imagination. If you want to know God rightly, it must be through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 10... Verse 22 he says, "All things have been handed over uh, to me by the Father, by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Who reveals God to us? The Son of God, Jesus Christ." In John 14:9 he says, "Whoever has seen me has seen whom? The Father." If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying when he talks about him being the exact imprint of his nature, of the nature of God. And that brings us to the last point from our text, and that's the greatness of Christ as God's final word. How great is God's final word? How great is Jesus Christ? He talks about him in verses 2, the end of verse 2 through the end of verse 4, and really through the end of the book, but we don't have time for that this morning. So he talks about the greatness of God's final word in his Son. Because Jesus Christ is the very Son of God, there can be no greater revelation of God to us than what we find in him. Just as there's no greater greater gift that God could give us other than his Son, there's no greater revelation God could give us of himself than Jesus Christ, whom he sent to seek and save the lost. Look at verses 2 through 4 once again. It says, but in these last days, he, that's God, as spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then he says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's who the baby in the manger is. That's the mind-blowing truth of Scripture about who our Savior is, who that baby in the manger is. we just saying, you know, what child is this? That's a really good question. What child indeed? That's the one who was born in that manger, the one who, through whom God created the world and who upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus Christ is the very Son of God. That's why it says He was appointed the Heir of all things. It's because Christ is the Heir of all things that we have all things in Him. Because He is the Heir. It says in Christ, it was Christ Himself that through whom also God created the world. John, verse, John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 says the same thing. It says, In the beginning was the Word. What, what does a Word do? A Word reveals God. It's a, God's speech. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and it says, verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. When it says Jesus was with God, the Word was with God in the beginning, what's it saying? He's eternal. He is the eternal Son of God, equal with the Father in power and glory. He is not a created being. No matter what the Jehovah's Witnesses might want you to believe. He is not part of creation, he is the firstborn over creation. There's nothing in the universe that was made without the Son of God being a part of making it. He's in there with God, it says, in the beginning, twice in those first two verses, it talks about him being there in the beginning. Where where does that lead you back? The opening words of all of Scripture, in the beginning God created the heavens And the earth, Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He is begotten, not made, very God of very God, as we often confess in the Nicene Creed. Without him, nothing in the universe was made. Jesus Christ is the one through whom all things have been made. And so, on the basis of that, the opening chapters of Genesis speak of Christ. He's not something that was just yet to come later on. It it, it hints at his... Power and glory, even in the opening chapters in the book of Genesis. Not only that, in verse three it says, we read of Christ that he is, quote, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's an amazing thing. It's hard to get your mind remotely wrapped around that. He's the radiance of the glory of God. God's glory shines at its fullest In Jesus Christ. You you want to see the glory of God, you look at Christ. It says he is the exact imprint of his nature. It's, It's a picture of kind of an engraving. You know, like you think of the signet ring that kings used to have, they'd press the ring into the wax. When you want to see the outline or the imprint of what God is like, where do you look? You look to Christ. Not only that, but it says Jesus was the one through whom all things were created, But it's also him that upholds, keeps things going, upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the agent of creation and of God's providence. Get your mind wrapped around that. That's who that baby in the manger was. That's who our Savior is, Jesus Christ. And then... Maybe the most shocking part or it should be shocking after reading that that he 's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature that he upholds everything in the universe, the writer just kind of thro- seems like he just kind of throws it in there after making purification for sins that 's who Jesus is that 's what that 's the one who did all that is the one who upholds the universe by his power he made purification for sins he died for our sins and shed his blood to cleanse us from them. And after that, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You know, we like John, we're reading Revelation right now. Uh, we'll get back to that after the new year. But, you know, twice John is tempted in that book to worship an angel. And, and one time the angel says, no, 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 you know, I'm a servant just like you. Now, he wasn't just like John, but... He wasn't remotely close to Christ. But they were so magnificent and powerful and awe-inspiring that that John was tempted to fall down and worship them. And yet they're not even a drop in the bucket compared to Jesus Christ in all his glory. And so, as always, the cross of Christ is never far from view. Even at Christmas, even in connection with the glory of Christ, the Son of God himself came and was incarnate and born of Mary for one reason— that he might die for our sins on the cross, that we might be saved. And after that, what did he do? He rose from the grave, he ascended to heaven, and is even now seated at the right hand of God, at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's an opening for the book of Hebrews, to get you into the rest of the book. Like, that's that's where he starts. And there's no greater place he could have started. No prophet, not even an angel from heaven, can speak to us of God and reveal God to you the way Jesus does. You you should be happier with what you have in front of you than, than, than if an angel's knocked on your door to try to reveal God to you. You have Christ himself, God's only son, as his final word to reveal him to you by faith. And so we must not look elsewhere to find God or to know God, he is the only Savior of sinners, the only mediator. The Bible says Christ is the only mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so I asked this morning at Christmas and any other time, have you believed on Christ for salvation? There's no other way to know God. God is not revealed savingly in any other place, in any other person than Christ Jesus our Lord. He is God's final word. In these last days God has spoken to us, how? By his Son, that we might have salvation by faith in him. And we have we have the great privilege of living in these last days where God no longer speaks in types and shadows, but has spoken to us by his Son. Think about it. No One of the heavenly hosts we read of in Luke chapter 2 praised and glorified God at the birth of Jesus Christ. The Bible talks about angels longing to look into these things and what all these things in the Old Testament meant well, they finally got to see it. No wonder they praised God and the whole sky lit up and the, you know, the shepherds were fearful and what did they do? They went and praised and glorified God for His revelation of Himself in Christ as well. Let's, let's pray.